Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you can grow up to a certain point, mm-hmm. right? Something will give. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess it's they seek for the path of the path of least resistance, yeah. right? So if it's near the opening of the staking tube, then that's a logical pathway. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't know. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Purr Podcast. And I have to apologize that we're a little bit late this week uh, because of circumstances. And one of the circumstances is that I am in the Netherlands on a short holiday break. So we got a little delay and Dr. Susan is still uh, not online with us, but she will be back shortly. But I'm very excited to be here in Holland because we have a special guest and we're going to talk about cats and we're going to talk about ENT and cats. And if you don't know what that is, you will find out because we have with us Dr. Gerte Haar. Good morning. Good morning, Gert. Yes, <laughs> this is wonderful. We're sitting here in Utrecht, uh, in the middle of the Netherlands. Uh, very excited to be here and talk with you a little bit about cats. So uh, this podcast is all about cats. And sure. This is for veterinarians and veterinary technicians and anybody that loves veterinary medicine. Um, so tell me who you are and what do you do? Sure. Um, I'm a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgery, so I was trained as a surgeon, but mainly dealing like 90% of the time with ear, nose and throat diseases in both dogs and cats. Um, but actually I mainly see cats because it's incredible how often they are afflicted with all kinds of ear, nose and throat diseases. So ENT is for ear, nose and throat, so yes. that makes it very simple. Um, so w- when we talk about cats, what are some common diseases that we see in the ear, nose and throat? Let's start with the ear first. I guess if a cat comes in with a chronic ear problem, then they generally have a polyp until proven otherwise. Hmm. It's just that common. Uh, of course, they can have all kinds of simple infections as well, but something that tends to come back and come back, generally it means there's a polyp somewhere. And does it matter how old the cat is? Not really, though you see polyps more in young animals, they can occur up to, to 10, 12 years of age even. Wow, so uh, chronic ear disease polyp is number one, so what would be number two then? Number two probably is otitis media, so a middle ear infection, inflammation, together with uh, upper respiratory tract disease, so rhinitis, inflammation of the nose and nasal cavities. Hmm. So, and then if you go to the nose? To the nose, basically the infections, the chronic uh, cat flu type of patients. Um, The funny thing is that of course, with a chronic inflammation, they can develop polyps, right? So it's not always easy to distinguish one from the other because one can lead to the other. But it's generally an inflammatory condition Sometimes foreign bodies that get lodged on top of the soft palate or in the nose, and of course, sometimes a form of cancer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll talk about these topics a little bit more in detail uh, later, but uh, let's switch to the throat then. The throat, again, 
a cat polyp is number one in the throat but they can have um, difficult diseases in an area on top of the soft palate mm. um, like nasopharyngeal stenosis narrowing of the passage um, those can be challenging to diagnose and to treat yeah yeah i can imagine i can imagine so in your practice you uh, you work in a private practice here in the netherlands correct correct in utrecht yeah yeah and so you see mainly uh, ENT patients then here? Yes, yeah, I'd say about 90% of the time. Yeah, wow. so at least 20 a week. Yeah. So you're really specialized because can you tell a little bit what you did before you became an ENT surgeon? Of course. Well, I, I became a regular vet like, like anyone else, I guess, and then um, started to specialize via residency in small animal surgery at the European University. Um, within that training, part was dedicated to uh, treating ear, nose and throat disease. And after finishing the residency, I kind of went on with that and thought it was a really interesting area where you have to combine really nice diagnostic workup techniques like endoscopy with um, yeah, really difficult surgeries often because it's an area yeah, where there's a lot of important structures. You have to be really careful, really know your anatomy. And that's kind of how it developed. And then with time, with doing more research in that area, doing a PhD in that area, uh, yeah, you more or less become an, an ENT specialist. Yeah, so you're really super specialized. And I remember when we were together at Utrecht University, uh, first you did your residency, but then you did special training with a very famous ENT surgeon here in Holland, Dr. Anjuk van Venker, Hagen. And, and she probably taught you the, the, the tricks uh, and then you even specialized more because you did a PhD in this, uh, this field. So you are truly a ENT surgeon. How many are there in the world? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, there are many ENT enthusiasts. That's the good thing. But I think that often the work is divided between internal medicine and surgery, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there are many people that are really dedicated to just ENT, although they are there. There are people that mainly do ENT, both in Holland, there are at least two, three more. Uh, some people in Germany that I know of, uh, in Australia, I'm sure in the United States as well, right? But it's not, it has not become yet as clear a specialty as, for instance, ophthalmology, yeah. but I'm hoping it's heading there. Yeah, 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 that's really good. And you're also part of a organization eh, that is uh, you know, promoting ENT in veterinary medicine. What's that organization yeah, about? That's that's correct. That's the uh, IVENTA, the International Veterinary Ear, Nose and Throat Association. Um, it, that, that organization goes back a long, long time. And it started with, of course, um, my mentor, eh, Dr. Anja Fenke van Hagen, and a lot of uh, ENT enthusiasts. And we often um, hold a pre-congress just, uh, just before any regular WSAVA conference. Uh, to talk specifically on ENT diseases. Yeah, that's cool. So let's dive into a specific disease, and you mentioned it many, many times, the polyps, um, which are, are common reasons for ear, nose, and throat diseases in cats. Uh, tell a little bit about how do they occur, and how can people recognize them? Sure. Um, I guess the idea currently is that polyps probably arise because of chronic irritation of mucosa and uh, you have a lot of mucosa in the nose uh, but also in the middle ear 
and most polyps are thought to arise from chronic irritation inflammation of the middle ear mucosa. If that mucosa and that polyp stays within the middle ear, you will probably not notice a lot other than loss of hearing. But if the polyp grows large and bursts through the tympanic membrane or grows through the auditory tube into the nasopharyngeal area, then you'll have clear clinical signs. If it goes into the outer ear canal, uh, you will find um, that there will be an inflammation in the ear canal with scratching of the ear, shaking of the head and discharge. If it grows into the nasopharynx, um, then it occupies the airways and you will start getting problems with breathing, more noise, more snoring noises, uh, maybe some gagging and retching and more difficulty with swallowing. If the polyp in the middle ear leads to a real infection and the inner ear becomes involved, then the clinical signs are even more dramatic with uh, inner ear disease. And then you usually see a head tilt, you can see neurological abnormalities, uh, imbalance, and then it becomes very clear to the owner that something is wrong. Uh, generally, any cat with chronic symptoms of the ear, nose or throat should be evaluated for the mm. presence of polyps because yeah, infections you can deal with with medication but as long as there is a polyp uh, the problem will always come back yeah so uh, so, it's, so it's a common disease in in cats uh, mainly originating from the middle ear then then i guess and it can go two ways to the outside uh, one is uh, through uh, the ear canal and the other one is uh, towards the throat and often they are pedunculated yeah? so they have a long uh, you know tail but the, the mass itself is the, the problem child probably the causing most of the, the clinical signs that we see yeah yeah i would say so especially the ones in the in the throat right mm -hmm. it's then the, the space occupying mass that causes the clinical signs mm -hmm. in the ear canal it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. even a small little hole in the eardrum you know, even a two millimeter polyp would cause the same clinical signs as as a large one mm -hmm. right but the larger they are and the more pedunculated they are generally the easier they are to remove and and do they know why they are pedunculated so why don't they just stay in the middle ear and grow yeah, that's a good question i mean you can grow up to a certain point mm -hmm. right something will give mm -hmm. um so I, I guess it's they seek for the path of the path of least resistance yeah. right so if it's near the opening of the staking tube then that's a logical pathway yeah. um i guess i don't know so because of pressure you think that they are pushed through the orifice of the eustachian tube or through the you know uh, uh, into the ear uh, through uh, the eardrum i guess yeah i guess we always thought of it that way but it's an, it's an interesting question because you maybe because of infection you just mm -hmm. get a hole in the eardrum like mm -hmm. it can happen in people and then when there is a hole yeah. any polypus tissue may grow into the ear canal yeah. who knows what's the yeah. chicken and what's the egg right and then probably there's a lot of tension on, you know, when they move down or up to the ear, it's probably a lot of tension. That's probably why they are stretched out because is, is the polyp only the top part or if you would look histologically would also be the stalk abnormal or is that just mucosa that's stretched out? Yeah, it's, it is completely lined with mucosa, mm -hmm. but near the stalk, it becomes more and more fibrous, okay. right? But you can have large ones with a very thick fibrous stalk and you can have very small ones where most of the tissue is actually mucosa yeah, yeah. so I, I i can see you know if i look at sac, uh, 
physiologically that when there's when you pull at something that something is stretched so so that the the inflammatory process probably at the end and then the more you pull on it the more mucosa and and fibrous tissue stretch into that 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 track so and that also explains a little bit why the technique what you have to do with them sometimes works so can you explain what you do with these polyps so how do you do the diagnosis first sure um, I guess if you really want to know what's happening in the middle ear and how the middle ear has responded to the presence of a polyp, uh, if you have unilateral or bilateral disease, then CT scan imaging is, is the way to go, in my opinion, mm. uh, together with video otoscopy. So with a scan, you can really visualize uh, both middle ears, but also the respiratory tract. And as I mentioned, there's often concurrent diseases mm. in the nasal passages and the middle ears. You can see if there's any bony abnormalities, inner abnormalities. Um, if you have evaluated that and the middle ears look more or less normal, but there's a polyp inside, then sometimes you can just easily pull the polyp from the ear canal and then the rest of the disease will, will calm down once the tympanic membrane heals. And we call that a, a traction avulsion mm -hmm. uh, that you can do with the scope in the ear canal. That's probably at the moment uh, the most commonly used technique. If you do that well and you really grab it near the stalk, near the middle ear, near the origin, uh, then you would have about a 15% chance of recurrence afterwards. Um, there are other techniques. There are surgical techniques to open the ear canal um, with a very good outcome, but of course it's a little bit more invasive. I think that technique probably works better for the really big polyps mm. um, because endoscopically they would be more difficult to grab near the base. Yeah. Um, and if polyps recur or clinically if the inner ear is involved as well, then you may be better off opening the middle ear cavity and removing all of the mucosal lining to yeah, let's try go and there help in a second. So, so what you really do is you, you use a video otoscope to go past the polyp, I guess, and then look where the stalk is and try to grab the stalk with whatever force. What is your favorite forceps to use then? I use actually cup forceps for that, but okay. you have to be gentle not to take a biopsy. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are usually quite large, so they encompass quite a lot of tissue. Yeah. And that's the key, I think, is to grab as much tissue as you can. And you do that through the scope then? or Alongside the scope. scope, yeah. I don't like to work through the working channel because you're very limited because you yeah. can only use very small forceps yeah. and you're way more likely to take biopsies or to fragment yeah, the polyp. I understand. Right? I understand. So yeah, I always remember you know, the, the, the few polyps that I saw was that the hemostat technique that you try to grab as far yeah. as possible with the hemostat. But I bet, I bet with the biopsy, uh, it, you can get much farther in smaller spaces, so that yeah. makes a lot of sense to do it that way. And then you gentle traction, you just pull them out, and then hopefully, it, you know, it, it's quite surprising that 80% are not returning. You know, that's yes. 20, 15, yeah. 20% they are returning. So that means rather to me that the inflammatory process you take out, and then you know you kind of rip the mucosa attachment to the middle ear, and if the middle ear is not as uh, inflamed, then it might never come back. You just solve the problem there. But if the middle ear is involved, then you're probably just pulling it out is no use because then probably another one will occur or the clinical signs will not go away because they're more related to the middle ear disease than to the, obviously, the, the, the polyp itself. 
Absolutely. I think it, it really is, I mean, they arise from information, but then they maintain it, right? Mm -hmm. And at the moment, it was just one bout of information and you remove the polyp. And if you're lucky, the eardrum will heal and that's yeah. it. Uh, if especially if you treat for the underlying infection mm. inflammation, right? Yeah. So we yeah. often see animals with chronic rhinitis or even bronchitis. It's yeah. also part of the airways. Yeah. And if that's treated with steroids generally, uh, then the mm. chances of recurrence are way lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to the, the treatment uh, after we talk about, about the surgical aspect. So is there any difference between a, a intranasal or even interpharyngeal polyp compared with the ear polyp. Do you do anything different there? Not really. If they are on top of the soft palate, then generally, because they come through the estation tube, they have a very small stalk. Mm -hmm. So they're relatively easy to remove generally completely and recurrence rates are much lower. Yeah. Um, but the rest is the same. They come from the middle ear cavity, right? So from irritation there. So that's something. So you to try to from. grab them as close to where they come out. Yes. And that's how you rip them. Because yes. you know, I can't imagine how 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 long is a eustachian tube in a cat, well, approximately? One point five, two centimeters. Yeah. So it's very short. So yeah. you shouldn't be because what what I always tell people is you shouldn't be that afraid that the t stalk is short when you pull it from the pharyngeal area compared with the ear because if the stalk is really short in the ear you probably have left something in there because the stalk should be longer but if it's from the pharynx it's most of them pretty short so yeah. don't be afraid that that you didn't pull enough because you no know, but you should see a stalk if yeah, you don't yeah. see a stalk then yeah you okay. may be in trouble yeah. yeah because if you leave that stuff in in the the, the tube like that it probably will grow back yeah and it's it's like a bathtub isn't it if mm. you plug the exit uh, there's no drainage from the middle cavity and that will lead to mucus accumulation yes. and more chronic irritation yeah, and inflammation, sense, right? So, yeah. And so you say that you really like to do CTs because you want to see if uh, the middle ear is affected. So if you see big changes in the middle ear, you, you already told me that you like to approach the middle ear and, and the middle ear is a little different in cats than compared with the D word. We don't mention it. Um, what is the difference and, and how, what's the difference in approach to? Sure. I guess the cat middle ear is, um, is is quite special. It has a it's divided into two compartments by a septum, so it's really important when you do open it that you open both compartments mm -hmm. eh, and not leave anything uh, anything behind. And is that the reason if if, I'm, if on one side of the septum I go to the ear and if I'm on the other side of the septum I go to the the nasopharynx or has anybody looked at that? Yeah, the entrance of the stachian tube is, is near the transition actually between the two compartments. Mm -hmm. So, it, but it's more in the dorsal lateral. So both the dorsal lateral is the smallest part and the top part, and that leads to both ways okay. really. Yeah. So the polyp really chooses left or right, and then it goes. Uh, probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, the thing is, you mentioned is when when to go to the middle ear itself, right, yeah. to the base. I, th I have to say that it also depends on the breed, and uh, we see many lovely different types of cat breeds, but the Maine Coon is one of them that really stands mm. out. Mm. I will say that the Maine Coon is the champion in, in polyp formation. It's mm. um, it's incredible how quickly they develop large polyps and they have a much higher recurrence rate with, with conventional techniques of removing them. So if I have a, a Maine Coon yeah. and I see on a CT scan that there's quite significant middle ear involvement and thickening of the bone, I will be more likely to go for a bulla surgery than in a European short hair cat. So veterinary friends, listen well. Uh, if you have a Maine Coon with ear or a pharyngeal nasal disease, 
uh, always check for the, them polyps and uh, <laughs> and then and then do a little bit more than you usually would because uh, they have a high recurrence rate uh, very good information so um so when you approach the ventral bola i mean obviously do a ventral approach in a cat and not a lateral like we do in we like to do in dogs yeah correct i think that with the uh, because cats have large middle ear cavities um and it's not that deep in it's probably the best approach to get a wide exposure mm -hmm. of the tympanic cavity and from there um, you can safely open the septum and check both compartments you can reach the entrance to the external ear canal uh, to the eustachian tube so you should be able to evaluate everything the good thing about approaching it ventrally is that theoretically you can do it on both sides at the same time, right? Though the good thing is that there's hardly ever an indication to really do it, that type of surgery, on both sides at the same time. Yeah. And it's also associated with a bit of a higher risk of, uh, of problems around the whole anesthesia and recovery. Let's talk about risk a little bit because I always... I'm a little afraid when I talk about middle ear because there's so many sensitive structures around the middle ear that you have to be very, very careful about. So I always say if you if you don't do this surgery a lot, you better send them to a person that does because also things can go wrong. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned that. And that's, I think that most vets can do fantastic surgeries and there's no reason why they would not be able to, to learn how to do a VBO. But you have to do these things regularly. And it's really important to know the anatomy normally, but also in your patient. And that's something that I use the CT scan for. Because mm -hmm. sometimes with a chronic inflammation, the septum will disappear. You will have osteolysis or the bulla enlarges or the bone becomes a centimeter thick. That's really nice to know before you make an opening in it. Yeah, yeah and to know what to expect there. You can prevent a lot of complications uh, to the surrounding vessels and nerves and everything. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And VBO is ventral palaciotomy, just for my favorite readers that uh, didn't pick that up. But uh, yeah, that, that's a really good point. So look at your CT, use the CT not only for you know, to see if there's something abnormal, but also for your anatomy. And you can, of course, make slices out of it so you can see the anatomy really, really beautiful. Um, last question uh, before we end the show, because it's already we're at 21 minutes while well, it goes fast and you're talking about a topic that you like, um, is... Uh, medical therapy for these cases so sure. if you get a cat with a polyp what is the standard therapy you put them on uh, after removal of the polyp right because you would have to do that um, generally uh, it would be a tapering course of steroids just to reduce the inflammation in the mucosa um, depending on the presenting clinical signs if there's secondary bacterial infections you would give a broad spectrum antibiotic as well I think doxycycline is still one of the, the best first choice antibiotics, but if there are more severe problems or depending on your culture results, you can choose something else, of course. That is great. So what a wonderful episode, uh, hearing everything about polyps. We'll be back next week with uh, another episode, and then we're going to talk about the nose and, and the pharynx a little bit more. But uh, this was it for today. Thank you, Gert. You're very welcome. And thank you, listeners. If you like what you hear, please uh, give us a five-star review. And uh, you can find more information at perpodcast.net. My name is Dr. Jolle Kirpenstein, and I am your host today. So thank you very much for listening. 
Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screw-bite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. 